The Apostle Paul had a tendency to find himself in prison for preaching the gospel. And on one of those occasions, Paul was in prison under the authority of the governor Felix. And Felix was kind of a sketchy guy. So it's pretty obvious in the story that Felix recognizes Paul's innocence. But he had some friends that he owed a favor to that hated Paul. And so just on a favor, he kept an innocent man in prison for over two years. And while he gave Paul some liberty and some freedom to have people come in and take care of his needs, he would allow Paul to come up and talk about his faith and all these kind of things, he also would work Paul over trying to take bribes from Paul and trying to extort money out of this man of God and out of this apostle. And one of those times when Paul was coming up before Felix, he brought him up to talk about his faith. And so Paul comes before Felix and Felix's wife, Drusilla, and he starts talking about the gospel. But on this particular instance, he also talks about what it means to live a life of righteousness. He starts talking about a coming judgment and the importance of self-control. And Felix kind of freaks out a little bit when Paul starts talking about these things. Because here he is, a Roman governor, and he has all the authority that he needs, and so he doesn't need to worry about righteousness. He can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. And he doesn't want to think about coming judgment because he is the judge. He is the authority, and to think of someone having authority over him would be ridiculous. And the thought of having to have self-control as this man of great power and great wealth and great authority, it was more than he wanted to hear. And the story reminds us that the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5 are incredibly countercultural things. Paul presents to us in Galatians 5 a way of living that is strange and unfamiliar in a lot of cases because he calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute. He calls us to be gentle and, and meek. He calls us to be patient and kind. And he also calls us to be self-controlled. And self-control is a very counterintuitive thing because we are prone to both pass the blame when we do something that causes chaos or causes problems, but we also often believe that we are completely free to live however we want to do and my actions don't affect anyone else and I can do whatever I want when I want to do it. But the Christian life isn't simply about passion and love. But it's also about having the self-control to be able to use our lives to honor God, to submit ourselves to righteousness, to defeat sin in our lives, and also to love and to serve our neighbors. And so as we close out this discussion on freedom in Christ that's come out of Galatians chapter 5, we're going to close it out talking about the last fruit of the Spirit that Paul discusses, the fruit of the Spirit of self-control. And so this morning I'm going to read, as I have every week, from first and foremost, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And then we'll look at our passage today, which is Romans 6, 9 through 14. And so from Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And now from Romans chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for these gifts as we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit, all the things that you plant inside of us to grow so that we can reflect your goodness and your grace. And while all of them can be difficult from time to time, self-control is certainly one of the more difficult things to put into practice. And so this morning, as we talk about what it means to use the freedom that you've given us in Christ to live lives that are are self-controlled, God, I pray that you give us the humility to accept that, that you give us the strength to be able to put into practice, and then the desire to go out and, as Paul said, to let our reasonableness, to let our self-control be known to everyone. And so, God, we do ask that you bless this time as we read and discuss your word. Father, may you speak to us and through your Holy Spirit teach us. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. When we talk about self-control, we have to realize that self-control requires a change of thinking. Self-control requires a change of thinking, a new way of thinking in our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that if you just think hard enough about self-control that you can think self-control into a reality in your life. But self-control really does require thought. Our brains are wired to be excuse factories. And that's especially true when it comes to our relationship with Christ. We can make excuses for why we don't do things. We can make excuses for why we do things that we shouldn't be doing because we're constantly trying to justify ourselves. And that's something that's happened since Genesis chapter 3. Since the very beginning, when we see sin enter the world, we see this passing of the blame from Adam to Eve to the serpent, everybody trying to make an excuse for why they did the things that they do. In chapter 6, as Paul is talking about what it means to understand the gospel, and Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 are such great passages about understanding exactly what Christ has done for us in salvation. Paul reminds us in the first part of this chapter what it means to be a believer in Christ and the transition that happens. In verse 1 he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again because death no longer has dominion over us. 
Paul is reminding us that this is what Christ has done for us. That if, we've, if you've put your faith in Christ and trusted in him for salvation, then this is what's true about your life. That because of the death and because of the resurrection of Jesus, that something inside of us has died and has been brought back to new life. That our sinful nature, that our, our flesh, that the thing that desired wants to kill us has now been put to death by Christ. And we see that in the picture of baptism where we're buried and brought back up. And it's a completely, not just a new way of living, but it's a new identity as we've talked about so many times as we've looked through the fruit of the Spirit. This is what Christ has done for us. This is the power of the gospel. This is who we are in Christ. And so what we have to realize is that self-control doesn't begin with self-realization. It doesn't come from an understanding of of who we are and what we can do. It comes from an understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for us and what he's done in us. But this can be really hard to see, and it can be really easy to forget. Because there are a lot of times when it's hard to notice the work that Christ has done for us. There are some days where if you're a follower of Christ, you might look in the mirror and you might remember who you were. And you might be able to say, man, I, I remember who I was 5, 10, 15 years ago. And thank God that I've I'm, I'm, I'm come so far. Thank God that I'm so much different. Thank God that so much of this has changed in my life. And then there are some days when we look in the mirror and we see that same person from 5 years ago. We see that same person from 10 years ago. We see that same person from 15 years ago. We see sometimes the same struggles and the same difficulties. And it can be really hard to see the work that Christ has done in our lives. Sometimes it can be really easy to forget. Sometimes things can be going so well and life is on autopilot that we forget that we needed the work of Christ at all. And again, that's why week after week we do that confession of sin in the middle of our service because it reminds us that day by day by day we need the grace and the mercy of God. But it can be really easy to forget that. Sometimes when life is going really hard, sometimes when life is really difficult, it can be easy to forget all the work that Christ has done because things seem so overwhelming and things seem so difficult. And so knowing that full well, because Paul's the same person that wrote that he so often does the things that he doesn't want to do and, and he doesn't do the things that he wants to do. He understood the struggle and the tension. And out of that mindset and out of that heart, Paul writes these words when he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, because all of this is true. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and because of what that means for those who are in Christ, that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, raised again to walk in the newness of life. Because all of that is true, and because you believe the truth of the resurrection, because of all of that, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So much of living out our freedom in Christ So much of our walk with Jesus is about recognizing our new state of being and being aware of our new identity in Christ. And we see that over and over and over again in this New Testament, the reminder that if you are in Christ, you're a new creation, that you belong to God, that you've been adopted as sons and daughters of God, that the old is dead and the new has come. And I think it's in there so much because I need it that much. I need that reminder over and over and over again that because of what Jesus did, he's not only saved me to do something else, he has saved me to be something else and has changed me from the inside out. 
there are going to be plenty of times when we don't feel dead to sin. There'll be plenty of times when you don't feel free, but those feelings never change the reality of what Christ has done in our lives through the gospel. And so when sin feels too strong, when we feel like we don't have any control, we have to remember not only what Jesus accomplished for us, us, but why he accomplished it and how he accomplished it and the reality that he did what he said he did and that the God who began that good work in us in Christ Jesus will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus and he won't let us fall away no matter what our feelings happen to be. One of the great things about the Christian life is that It's a whole body, whole being, whole person kind of thing. And so we focus on the right way of thinking, on knowing the truth about the gospel, about knowing who God is, about knowing the right things about Christianity. But we also put into practice the right actions. And we practice our faith over and over again. The words for that, the big words, are orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right thinking, and orthopraxy is is right living or right actions. And as we develop a right understanding of the gospel, as we develop a right understanding of what Christ has done for us, then that motivates us to do the right things. And so as we know the truth about what Christ has done in us, then that reminds us that, yes, I do have, by Christ, the ability to love my enemies as myself. I do have the ability to be joyful in all circumstances, to have peace that surpasses understanding, to be patient even when I don't want to be patient, to be kind even when I don't feel very kind, to be meek even when I think that I'm awesome and good, and to be all of these things that Christ has said, and even to be self controlled and then as that right thinking leads to our right actions as we start to go out and to be kind as we start to go out and to love our enemies as ourselves and to love our neighbors and to consider others more significant than ourselves and all these things that we've talked about as we go out and live lives that are self-controlled it reminds us of the truth of the gospel because we know that we can only do these things because the power of God is working in us and so that adds to our right thinking and then more of that right thinking adds to more of the right actions and so all of this works together the work of the flesh is still very powerful in our lives It's still something that's ever ready to tear us apart, and it's easy to feel out of control, and it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And so during those times, we have to remember who Christ is. We have to remember what he's done, and we have to remember who that makes us. If we consider ourselves free to Christ because of the gospel, then we have to think like people who have been set free. Because if we continue our life with this this mindset of captivity or that we can't overwhelm our sin or that it's too great or too powerful, that we're still enslaved, eventually we're going to find ourselves walking backwards into that captivity. But Paul calls us to run forward in our freedom and to not look at what's behind, but to keep pressing towards that goal and to keep chasing after Christ and to believe what he's done and allow that belief to push us in to who we're supposed to be. And so every day we have to consider ourselves children of God, to consider ourselves set free by his grace and his mercy, made whole by his sacrifice. And because of his death and resurrection, remember that what's inside of us, our sinfulness that once sought to kill us, has been put to death by Christ and that we're now alive in him and no longer bound to that sin. And so if you're in Christ, self-control begins with considering yourself alive, considering yourself free, 
and considering yourself able in Christ to be constantly in control of the life and the bodies that he has given us. Self-control starts with a completely new way of thinking that's born out of a realization of what Christ has done. Self-control also requires responsibility. Self-control requires responsibility. One of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel, where we see a physical representation of what Christ does for us, is in the story of Lazarus. So Jesus had this friend named Lazarus, and he was really close with Lazarus and his sisters. And Lazarus got sick, and Lazarus died. And so Jesus makes this journey to go and to see Lazarus. His sisters are upset and they're angry at Jesus because they knew that if Jesus would have just come a few days earlier, if he hadn't waited around, then he could have healed Lazarus when he was sick. But Jesus reminds them that he's not just supreme and sovereign over the living, but he's supreme and sovereign over death as well. And so Jesus walks up to the tomb and he mourns his friend. In this beautiful picture of the humanity of Christ, we see Jesus weep over his friend who had died. And then he looks at the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who had been dead, Lazarus, who had breathed his last, took another breath and got up and walked out of the tomb. And that's the picture of the gospel. That's what Paul is telling us here in in Romans chapter 6. That's what Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians and in Galatians, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that we had nothing to offer God on our own, that our sin was killing us. And so Jesus stepped in by his death and resurrection and looks at us and calls us out of death and into new life. That it's not our work. It's not based on what we do. So Paul says that none of us have any excuse or any reason to boast, but it's the work of God. It's by grace, through faith. It's all about the power of God over sin and death. And it's a beautiful, grace-saturated thing. But it can be really easy just to stop there. And say that salvation, the gospel, is just about Jesus saving us from our sins and forgiving us and giving us this new, new hope for a future. That, that Jesus is all about going to heaven when we die. But remember, the story of Lazarus didn't stop when Jesus says, get up. That Lazarus didn't just hear the voice of Jesus and sit up in his tomb and go, <sighs> and then just hang out in the tomb for the rest of his life. Jesus told Lazarus to get up and walk. And Lazarus takes those steps out of the tomb, but not only does he walk out of the tomb, but he lives the rest of his life after his resurrection. In verse 1 through 4, as Paul talks about this idea of the, the transfer that happens from, from sin and death to life and righteousness, in verse 4 he says, We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That when we trust in Christ for salvation, when we're saved by the grace of God, we're not simply raised, but we are raised to walk in the newness of life. We're called to go out and to do the work that Christ has called us to do, to be the men and women who Christ has saved us to be. And he continues that thought in verses 12 and 13. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. These are very personal commands. Paul doesn't say that Jesus saves you so that he will 
keep sin from reigning in your mortal body and that he will present yourself to God as someone who's been saved by grace and mercy and all of these things. Paul says you have the responsibility and the power to not let sin reign in your bodies. That you have the responsibility and the power to not present yourself to God as something for unrighteousness, but to present yourself as God as someone who's been brought from death to life and to present your members or your body to God as instrument of righteousness. These are commandments from God that fall directly on our shoulders to put into practice self-control and righteousness. As we've talked about freedom in Christ, we were reminded that freedom in Christ gives us the freedom to choose how we use it. That in Jesus, we have been totally and completely set free. He says that we're set free from the law and we're set free from sin. But we're called to use that freedom well. In the... Holman Dictionary, the definition of self-control, talks about freedom in Christ. It says, freedom in Christ does not give believers liberty to cast off all moral restraint, as some members in Galatia and other churches apparently believed. Nor does it call for a withdrawal from life and its temptations. It calls for a self-disciplined life, following Christ's example of being in the world and not of the world. Self-control is the call to use our freedom well. To know that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has given us complete and total freedom to to either pursue him or not. And Paul calls us to use that freedom well by being self-controlled and self-disciplined. That we don't get some sort of immunity from the rest of the world, but the call to live in the world and not of it. The call to be surrounded by temptation, but not to fall into that temptation. The call to know that we still have this fleshly desire to pull back into our sin, but to fight against that and to persevere. Sin wants us to obey it. Sin wants to take control of us, and it it can. And it can do that easily. When Tim Keller talks about self-control, he says that self-control is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent rather than to always be impulsive or uncontrolled. That self-control is the opposite of what Paul called the work of the flesh. Remember, the work of the flesh was all about the immediacy of getting it. Things like lust that just wants to consume and devour as much of something as it can because our bodies and our flesh is worried about running out of things and not having enough. But the grace and mercy of God allows us to focus not on the immediate, not on the urgent, but on the things that are important. To not give in to our every urge and our every desire and just to constantly desire to fulfill ourselves but to look to the things that matter, to the gospel things, to the eternal things, to be able to be patient and kind, to be able to put the needs of others before our own and to love our enemies. Sin tempts our urgent impulses, but Paul says here that we don't have to let sin be victorious. He says it in a weird way. It feels like some of those words are out of place. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies and make you obey its passion. What he's saying there is to make war on that sin and not let that sin have control over you because it doesn't anymore because of what Jesus has done. He says to take control of those desires, to take control of your members, of your body, and not be subject to your impulses and your urges, but make those things subject to yourself because you are spiritually alive in Christ. We're called to take responsibility and control of ourselves, to not be instruments of unrighteousness, but to one day be able to present ourselves to God in the way that he made us and for the purpose that he saved us. 
to be able to make our bodies subject to our control and use them for what's right and use them for what's good and not simply to glorify ourselves. The good news is, while this is our responsibility, it doesn't come by our power. Because again, we can feel so weak and we can feel so out of control. But as we do think rightly about the gospel, we remember that it was God who brought us from death to life. That it was God who defeated sin, and it's God that gives that power to us so that every believer carries with them the power of God, the victory over sin, and the fruit of self-control. When Strong's Dictionary defines this word, it says that self-control is mastery from within. And I love that language because it so goes hand in hand with everything that we've talked about when it concerns the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit aren't practices that we put into place. They're not simply religious actions that if you do those things well enough, then they'll become part of your life. But there are things that are planted inside of us from, from without. They're things that God gives us and puts in our lives that then begin to grow up. And so this self-control is this mastery from within. And it's not birthed out of our own strength or abilities, but it's birthed out of the strength that we receive through Christ and through the gospel that he puts that inside of us and then raises it up within us. We're to use this strength and we're to use this freedom that we've been given to stop sin from reigning in our lives to control our desires and our urges and our actions and put our lives to work glorifying God and serving others and living out the fruit of the Spirit. And so we think differently about who we are because of our new identity in Christ. And then we take on that responsibility knowing that Jesus has given us the ability to be in control and to live out these fruit of the Spirit. But what about on a practical side? That all feels kind of big idea. What about the practical ways that we can become people who exhibit self-control? Well, first and foremost, it starts with believing in the gospel. That these fruit of the Spirit, all of them, from love to self-control, are all something that are given as spiritual gifts and not something that we can earn. And so it starts with trusting in Christ for salvation. It starts with knowing the story that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses but can be made alive through Christ to God. And so it begins there. And if you haven't trusted in Christ for salvation, that's where this journey to all of these fruit of the Spirit begin, with believing in the gospel and repenting of our sins and trusting in God to make us right and to make us new and answering that call of salvation. And so if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before or never been through baptism, then I would encourage you and beg you and implore you to come and talk with me or with David in the back after the service about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation and to be new. Because that's where it begins. But that belief in the gospel isn't just a one-time thing. The belief in the gospel is just as important for someone who's been a Christian for 40 years as someone who's never heard it. We need to know the gospel and to believe the gospel every single day. That's where we get that transforming of our hearts and the renewing of our minds by knowing day after day after day that I was a sinner lost and and on a pathway to death and Christ intervened and called me out of that and saved me by his grace and by his mercy. And because of that, I'm not who I used to be. I've been declared good by a God who is so good and so passionate and so holy that he sees the righteousness of Christ in me every single day and that he's equipped me and gifted me to go 
go out and to live out this new life. And so we need to believe that every single day. And so it starts with a belief in the gospel, but then it has to move to a trust in that gospel, to trust the power and the grace of God, to not only believe that it's true in some sort of philosophical sense, but to know that it's true, to trust in the power of God, to know that I'm too weak to do any of this stuff, but it doesn't matter because it's not my skills and it's not my effort, but it's the power of Christ and the power of God working through me. And I might not feel very saved some days and I might not feel very worthy of the calling that God has given me, but because of his grace and mercy, I am. And so because of his grace and mercy, I can be someone who loves not only my neighbor, not only my friends, not only my family, but I can be someone who loves my enemies and prays for those who persecutes me. I can be someone who is is patient, even though I don't really feel patient all the time. I'm someone who can have joy in all circumstances, even when life is hard, even when life is difficult, even when happiness is hard to find. I can find joy in Christ, and no matter how overwhelmed I feel with temptation and sin, I'm someone, because of the power of God, who can be self-controlled. So we believe the gospel, we trust in the gospel, and then we look to the example of Christ. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is based on the character of God. It calls us to live ways that reflect the goodness and the grace and mercy of God in everything that we do. And so all of this comes from a picture of who God is and what he's done. And the place where we see that most clearly is in the life of Christ. And so we can look to Jesus and see his self-control. We talked about some of it last week when we were talking about the meekness of Christ. As we see Jesus stand before the authorities who are throwing all of these false accusations against him, knowing that his life is on the line and still had the self-control and the meekness to, to look at those accusations and face those accusations and say nothing on his behalf because he knew what he had to do. We see a Jesus who had the power of heaven and earth behind him and yet stayed nailed to a cross even when people challenged him to come down because he knew the work that he had to do. And so we have to spend time in the Gospels. We have to spend time seeing the work of Jesus and the life of Jesus and recognizing his love, recognizing his patience, recognizing his kindness, and also recognizing his self-control. Because when we call ourselves Christians, we're saying that we are followers of Christ, that we are little Christ, that we are designed to reflect his character to the world, and it's really hard to reflect it if we don't know it. And so spend time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Spend time in the New Testament as Paul encouraged his followers to follow him and to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And so look to the examples of those who walked with Jesus as we see Peter, as we see Paul, as we see James, all of these incredible men of God who are calling us to this Christian lifestyle, but not only calling us to do it, but we see modeled for us in the book of Acts and beyond. And so to look to the example set for us in scripture about what it means to be men and women who are self-controlled. We can also practice spiritual disciplines. I don't enjoy the word discipline. I'm not a particularly disciplined person. I'm trying to be, because I felt like at 30, when I hit 30, what, a couple years ago? I'm 31 now. When I hit 30, that's a, that's a landmark, right? And so that's a good time for life change. And so I thought, I've been completely undisciplined most of my life. And so now, 30. 
is discipline. And so I've tried to change what I eat and try to run, and running is stupid, and I hate running, and it's miserable, and it makes my knees hurt, and I get congested because there's pollen outside, and I would much rather be inside where there's not pollen, and I'm not running, and I would rather sit on the couch and eat Oreos because that is far more pleasant than discipline. And so discipline has always been something that's been difficult for me, not only in my normal kind of everyday life about that stuff, but also in following Christ. But Christianity does have contained in it some disciplines that God has given us that help us to become more and more like Christ. Things that we're supposed to practice daily and regularly in our lives so that we can grow in our walk with him. Reading scripture is one of those disciplines. To really dig into scripture daily and to seek after God through the word that he has given us. Because that's how he's revealed himself to us. And so we should take advantage of that and pour ourselves into that and know scripture as deeply as we possibly can. And be committed to and passionate about scripture. And the problem with disciplines is some days you wake up and you don't feel like running. And some days you wake up and you don't feel like reading scripture. And so sometimes we have to do it not out of simple passion, but out of devotion and out of discipline because there will always be a reward that comes out of reading scripture as we grow closer and closer to God and deeper in our knowledge of who he is and what he's done for us. We spend time in prayer and be people who are dedicated to prayer, to talking with God. And that seems like a strange thing to call a discipline because we talk to people all the time. But for some reason, it seems different when it comes to our relationship with God because it requires something that feels ritualistic sometimes where we might find a place to close our eyes and pray, but you can also pray with your eyes open. I'd encourage it if you pray on a commute to work because the other would be, well, you'd probably talk to God much quicker because you'd be there, but closing your eyes while you drive is not very helpful, and so when you pray, you can open your eyes, and you can do that as a constant dialogue and conversation with God, but we need to be people devoted to that, because in prayer, we not only, again, know who God is, we not only communicate with God, but God speaks with us, and God leads us, and guides us, and draws us closer and closer to Him, and there are plenty of times when self-control is hard to come by, that we need to go and pray the way that Jesus told us to pray, saying, God, don't deliver me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Lead me not into temptation, but keep me away from all that evil and all that sin that wants to consume me. Because again, it's not about willpower, but it's about the power of God working in and through us. And so sometimes we need to go to God and confess our weaknesses and confess the places where we don't feel like we have control. Confess the places where we've come up short and ask God for help. And he has promised that he is good and will faithfully encourage us and lead us and strengthen us for what we need. We're going to take communion in a little bit. That's a spiritual discipline where we don't just come up to the table to remember. We do. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, we remember what Christ has done. But this act of communion is also there to give us spiritual strength, to remind us that Christ was broken and bled for us, but also to remind us that because of that, we are new creations and the old is past and the new has come and we can do what we're called to do. Coming to church. Being a part of a church body is such an important discipline, not just coming on Sundays, but being invested in the lives of the people who are a part of that church and surrounding yourselves with people who can be good examples of what it looks like to be self-controlled. And also you can be an example to others of what that looks like, because like iron sharpens iron, we need to sharpen one another. 
and to sing songs together and to pray together and to do life together and to eat together, to hear the word of God together. All of this is designed to strengthen us and build us up and to help those fruit of the Spirit grow in our lives. And then fasting is an incredibly important discipline when it comes to self-control. And if fasting is not something that's been a regular part of your life, you get a really good opportunity because in a couple weeks we start the season that we call Lent. And Lent is a season of about 46 days or so where we focus on fasting and we remember Christ in the wilderness as he was fasting and pursuing God and answering his call into ministry. We walk through the wilderness with Christ and we spend time in prayer. We spend time giving to those in need and it's also a really nice time to fast. And fasting is one of these spiritual disciplines that humbles us because it reminds us of all the things that we lean on as opposed to Christ. But it also gives us time to exhibit self-control, to take something, whether it's food or something else, that's a regular part of our lives and an important part of our lives and remove that thing and replace it with times of prayer, with times of worship and times of, of loving others and serving others and giving to those who are in need. And so practicing those spiritual disciplines helps us to be able to become more self-controlled people because those disciplines strengthen and grow the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And then finally, we can cultivate the other fruit of the Spirit. We talked very early on, and Tim Keller points this out, that all of these fruit of the Spirit are designed to grow parallel with one another. That we don't just become really good at one thing or the other, but they're all supposed to grow up together. And so we're not supposed to just be a person who is meek and then have another person in the church who is self-controlled and another person who might be really loving and another person who is kind, that all of us individually and then all of us corporately together are supposed to be people who are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so all of these things are designed to not just grow up independently from one another, but to be used to help the other fruit of the Spirit grow. And so as we love, then maybe we can become more kind. And as we grow in our kindness, then maybe we can grow in our patience. And as we grow in our patience, then we're able to grow in our self-control. And as we grow in self-control, then maybe we grow in our love more. And these things just feed into each other and help each other grow up. And so we should be looking at feeding all of this in our lives and seeing those fruit of the Spirit grow more and more and more. And as we do, by default, we will become people who are more self-controlled. And so if Christ has set us free from something that tried to kill us, we'd have to ask ourselves a really important question. Why would I want to return to something that tried to kill me? We have this tension where Paul says the flesh and the sinfulness is pulling against the work of the Spirit in our lives, but Christ has set us free from slavery to sin. He set us free from the captivity to our fleeting passions and our selfish desires. And he's called us to be a people who are self-controlled and devoted to righteousness. One day we'll all be able to stand before God and to give an account for how we've used the life and the freedom that he gave us. And so I hope and I pray for all of us that our desire would be to stand before God and to say, 
Thank you for the freedom that you've given me. Here's how I used it to love. Here's how I used it to serve. Here's how I used it to be kind and patient and all these things. And here's how I was able to take even the sinful desires and to work those out and to be a master over those things instead of allowing them to be a master over me so that I used my body. I used this life that you gave me not to serve myself and not for selfish desires and not for unrighteousness, but to love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love my neighbor as myself and to love my enemies and to care for those who you put around me and use myself for righteousness. As we look at all of these things together, these are not... options. The fruit of the Spirit is not something that is designed to be a buffet where we take and choose what we want and what we don't want. But these things are also not burdens. When we talk about self-control, sometimes when we talk about kindness or patience, it can be really difficult. Because you hear people all the time say, don't pray for patience unless you want God to give it to you. It's not a burden. It's a gift that God has given us. It's fruit that God has put in our lives that are designed to help us grow closer in our walk with Christ, closer in our relationships with other people, to be evangelists in everything we say and everything we do. But also it's designed and its ultimate purpose is to make us more and more like Christ, to be more and more who we're supposed to be and the people that God has saved us to be. And there's nothing burdensome about that. Sometimes it may be difficult. Sometimes it may be frustrating. But it's always freeing, it's always good, and it's always beneficial. And so let's commit to be people who pursue Christ in all things, in every aspect of our lives, and who recognize these fruit of the Spirit from love to self-control as things that are good and things that are gifts from God, and to pursue those things growing in our lives day after day after day. Let's be people who love who are joyful, who have peace, who are patient, kind, good, and faithful, who are gentle and meek and self-controlled. And let's do it as often as we can, with as much passion as we can, because as Paul says, against these things there is no law. There's no restrictions to how good we can be, how faithful we can be, how loving we can be, and so on and so on. And so let's abuse that goodness that God has given us and be these things to the absolute max that we possibly can so that when people see us, when people know us, when people hear our words, when people think of our church, they recognize the goodness of God and the power of God and the grace and mercy of God in everything that we do.